We're in Amos chapter 7, starting at verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there, and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. This is God's word. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, thank you that you're patient. We thank you for that you're uh, patient with us. And we're grateful that your patience has a day when it ends. Help us to understand these things rightly, we pray. So we trust in Christ. And so we plead like Amos. Amen. Now, patience is a wonderful virtue. Uh, It's great to be patient uh, in and of yourself. Um, It's lovely when you see it in others. But unlimited patience is not.
So it's good to have a parent who is patient with their toddler and uh, endures, you know, somewhat of their tantrums. And as the child grows up, it is patient and kind and, and cuts them some slack. That's good. But sometimes a parent needs to step in and discipline for the good of the child. Elsewise, they turn up pretty obnoxious. Let a toddler do what they want and... Well, I'm not sure that's patience. There comes a point at which it's just indifference. I can't be bothered to get involved. It's too much effort to, uh, to reprimand. I'll just let them have, have as many sweets as they want. So there's patience, but if there's no limit to your patience, actually at a point, it's just uncaring. Or, um, uh, you put it in a different context, the school bully, perhaps, is given a second chance. And a third chance. But eventually the school says, enough. You've done this once, twice, three times. You're expelled. Get out. And everyone who's been a victim of his says, well, thank you so much. We're glad you gave him a chance. But we're glad your patience has ended. Because he made our lives miserable. It's good to be patient. But you need a limit to patience. And if there is no limit to your patience, well, you don't care. Chapter 7 to 9, in particular of Amos, God says, my patience is now at an end. Enough. I'd endured centuries of Israel's callous, uncaring behavior its utter indifference to the poorest in society, its corruption in the making of money, its utterly half-hearted worship and pretense of religion. Enough. Patience is ended. Patience is a wonderful virtue, but if there is no limit, it's just uncaring indifference. Judgment has run out. If you're joining us tonight, well, brilliant, welcome. Uh, we're in the book of Amos, and um, uh, it's not laugh a minute, to be honest, uh, but we're into the better stuff. Yeah. Um, so chapters 1 to 2, Amos has pronounced uh, God's warning uh, upon the nation of Israel. So he pronounced God's judgment. Uh, you're going to be destroyed. Chapters 3 to 6, he tries to persuade them of that, because they think, wow, really? Seriously? What's the problem with that? Chapter 7 to 9 are visions of the end. So I'm not arguing with you anymore, says Amos. I'm not pretending. I'm not trying to sort of sort out your pretense, rather. But here is the end, chapter 7 to 9. Largely composes these chapters of five visions. We had four of them read tonight. We'll get just to the last one next time. But unlike the rest of the book also, Amos is not just merely pronouncing what God has said. He's heavily involved in the action. We see him pleading with God and arguing with Amaziah, the Archbishop of Bethel, the leading religious figure of the day. So God's patience is running out. But uh, let's look at it in these ways. Uh, Pleading for others, release God's mercy. Chapter 7, 1 to 6. Ignoring God's word, produce God's justice. That's the bulk of it. 7, 7 to the end. And then we just need to bear in mind that for you and I, we need to trust God's man who pleads for you. 
Okay? Pleading for others releases mercy. Ignoring God's word produces God's justice. But you've got to trust God's man who pleads for you. Let's look at it like that then. First, in uh, verse, chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, pleading for others, it released God's mercy. Now, uh, you get a pair of visions here. Um, verse 1 and 2 um, uh, works together. Uh, you get locusts, and uh, then you get fire not long afterwards. Two pairs of visions, uh, a pair. A pair of visions. These two work together. Listen to chapter 7, 1 and 2. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they'd stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Now, in that part of the world, you get two harvests, which is good, uh, just the way the climate works. So if one fails, it's okay, you've got a second go. So harvest number one, the king has said, thank you very much, that's for me and my household and, and keeping uh, uh, the wealthy happy. It's all right, you get harvest number two. But before harvest number two comes, uh, a plague of locusts wipes the whole thing out. The land is clean. So who's going to suffer here? Not the king and the affluent, it's the ordinary people. And so Amos says, no, please. Sovereign Lord, verse 2, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. Now, it isn't the most magnificent of uh, prayers, of intercession, of pleading with the Lord that you get. Uh, makes me think something great like uh, Exodus 32 is possibly the best in the Old Testament. Moses pleads with the Lord not to judge Israel at that point and says, but if you destroy Israel now, your reputation will suffer with the nations. They'll say, well, the God of Israel is not very impressive. Uh, Moses says, if you destroy Israel now, well, haven't you promised not to? These are great theological reasons. Amos is a bit more basic. Just please forgive. They're just so small. There's no, no even repentance here on behalf of Israel. It's an act of purest grace that the Lord relents. Verse 3, it will not happen. Verse 4, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. Here's the second one. Uh, verse 4, here, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling down for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep, divide, excuse me, devoured the land. Well, it's an even more dramatic picture, I guess, of burnt everything. You see a building after fire has ravaged it. Just this sort of blackened shell. You see it on the TV, pictures of uh, Aleppo, that sort of thing. But a whole land. And so Amos says, verse 5, well, he's given up on forgiveness. He just says, I cried out, sovereign Lord, I beg you. I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small, please. And so verse 6, the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. What do you learn from this sort of interaction? God says, is this going to happen? Amos says, please, no. And God says, oh, okay. Slightly unusual in one sense, interaction. Let me just try and pick out three things about Amos's pleading. It's prompted by God. There's desperate intensity and the personal God answers. Okay, just those three. Uh, first, then, it, it is prompted by God, this sort of pleading of Amos. 
Twice the Lord adopts what you might call, nervously this week, uh, the politician's tactic. So uh, God leaks in advance what he's going to do. Let's just leak it out there and see what happens. You know, sometimes politicians do that. They've got a policy. Let's just leak it to the press. What's the mood music? Mm, no, no. Okay, we won't do that. There's a sense, in, I don't want to be overplay that, but there's a sense in which God leaks in advance what's going to happen to Amos. And he is saying to Amos, I'm going to do this. And he's sort of drawing this pleading out of his man, the prophet. God wants Amos to plead. God wants to not implement this. So it's prompted by God, this sort of pleading. A second little thing, there's a desperate intensity to it. He pleads, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. Verse 5, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Now that is something I think we want to emulate. You see that sort of concern on the lips of Christ. Luke 19, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Because there are people in rebellion there who, who weren't followers of the Lord. And so he cries. Oh, Late in that, the Apostle Paul, Romans 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because my Jewish compatriots are not Christians. He goes on, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. There is in the Bible an intensity amongst God's people in their prayers for those who are lost. Paul can say, unceasing anguish, great sorrow in my heart. In the Bible, those who pray, intercede for those who are not believers, do so because they care very deeply. Uh, some of you, I mentioned this too. Uh, I was sent a prayer letter last week, or two weeks ago, um, and it quoted from a biography of St. Augustine, as you do. Uh, not all of you would have read that. I haven't. Uh, an ancient biography then, this sort of a great bishop from uh, centuries and centuries ago. Uh, and he was an immoral waster as a young man, no hint of him ever becoming anything like a Christian, completely debauched. His mother was a believer, and his devout mother pressed a, a senior uh, guy in the church. Look, can you go and argue with my, with my son? Can you go and reason with Augustine? He's just an immoral waster and I, I'm just desperate for him to become a Christian. And she went on and on and on at this guy uh, and the, the church leader refused saying, look, Augustine, he's just not ready. He's just not willing to listen to anything I'm going to say to him. And in the end, he said to the mother, leave me and God go with you. It is not possible that the son of such tears should perish. Excuse me. It is not possible that the son of such tears should perish. What's he saying? Now, biblically, 
there is no guarantee because a mother cries over her child that they become a Christian. The bloke's point was that sort of impassioned concern, driven prayer that expresses itself in a tearful anxiety is a great indication of someone having such a concern that the Lord may well act. No guarantees. But I guess I'd want to say for you and me, may God give us more of those sort of tears. I was asking myself this week, why not? Why not always for myself that sort of level of passionate intercession, a pleading, a tearful pleading, a concern from my heart? Why not? Busyness? Yeah. Other priorities? Yeah, perhaps. Just a lack of compassion? I'm just not very caring. Yeah, possibly. Fatalism? Do I think that God doesn't care? I don't know. I don't know about me. I have some idea. What about you? May God give us more tears. Personally. May God give us more tears corporately. That we long to gather together and pray. For a city. For our friends. Who are lost. May we do so on a Wednesday. At a prayer meeting. Who knows what judgments of the Lord have been averted in response to the prayers that you and I have prayed. I don't know. But let's pray. At this prayer then, uh, uh, this pleading, it was prompted by God. There's a desperate intensity to it. Last little comment on this. It was answered by the personal God. Verses 3 and verse 5, excuse me, verse 3 and verse 6, the Lord relents as he always had intended to. If you were here back in uh, January, we thought about this a little bit with Jonah, that uh, the city of Nineveh repents, and God says, oh, I will relent. It's the same word uh, as you got there. And again, as in the book of Jonah, the Lord had always intended to do this. There's no shock to him. The Lord reveals himself as sovereign, as having planned the beginning from the end, and also personal, responsive. That's who he is. And when we do pray passionately for for something, it is, I guess, because we know that. We're working on the assumption that it makes a difference. Because the prayers of God's people release his desire to have mercy. As he'd always intended to. It's a famous quote. Martin Luther's famous advice on praying to his barber. That's it. He didn't pray to his barber, I've said that badly. His famous advice to his barber on praying um, uh, was this. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. So important to know that. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. I don't know what conversations you have with your barber or hairdresser. 
mine, he's a Kurdish bloke. So mine largely consists with the state of Kurdish politics and football. Um, but Martin Luther was a bit more godly, so he spoke about prayer with his barber. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. I can I just say sort of tangentially, that is so very different from any other religion. Very little prayer in Islam of intercession. Yeah, there's rote prayers, of course, but you don't intercede for people because it would be viewed as blasphemous to try and tell Allah what to do. So you're not encouraged to. In Hinduism, you don't intercede for others. And on we could go. This concept of pleading with God for something for yourself, but also for the sake of someone else, it's a biblical thing. The Lord is sovereign and rules over all, but he responds. Prayer releases his mercy. So what happened then, it happens today. Pleading for others, release God's mercy. One to six. Okay, let's pick up the pace. Uh, secondly, what we see in this instance, secondly then, ignoring God's word produced God's justice. That's a bit of a word for, but I couldn't think of a better summary. Okay, Ignoring God's word produced God's judgment would be better. Second pair of, uh, uh, so the first pair, the sort of God says there's going to be destruction, utter destruction. Uh, Amos pleads, okay, I won't do it. Second set of visions, a bit different. They're more judicial, less dramatic about what's going to happen. But God says enough. So verse 7. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. Parallel with the vision at the start of chapter 8 of a basket of ripe fruit. I will spare them no longer. Enough. Now, I tried to find my plumb line at home. Anyone use a plumb line uh, anymore? I think it's a little bit dated. You've got to be some sort of uh, painted decorator. Uh, Pete Snow pretends he uses one. He's nodding. I'm not sure he ever has. The, um, you're, 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 okay. It's, sorry? Dated, okay. Um, he's agreed. He's never used one. You know what it is? Basically, a big lump, a, a lump of metal, uh, a sort of balanced lump of metal, and you tie a bit of string to it, and you put your wallpaper on the wall or something like that, and go, hmm, is the wallpaper straight? And you, you put this up, and basically provides you with a straight line. So you can go, hmm, to the naked eye, looks like my wallpaper's straight. But when I put a straight line next to it, it's clearly wonky. That's what a plumb line does. These days, you use spirit levels or just... Do it and go, oh, well, it wasn't very good. Uh, move on to the next thing. Um, that's just a generation of, that's a plumb line. Now, the picture here then is of the Lord standing next to a wall. I take it, the plumb line is God's word and the wall is Israel. Israel was built at Mount Sinai. That's the first time God declared them a nation. Uh, Exodus 19, Exodus 20. And he gave them his word to live by. Uh, and so the word of God, so we can even use it, is a, is a straight line. It doesn't really work as a little Bible. But, um, so you and I, we might think morally we look pretty good. But you put the plumb line of the word of God next to us and we think actually we're a bit crooked morally. We're wonky morally. And so here's a judicial picture. God has said, look, well, I've, I'm comparing Israel to how I've asked them to live in my word or told them to live in my word and they're no good. 
in particular, the things that are going to go, verse 9. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. And with my sword, I'll rise against the house of Jeroboam. It's the religious centers and the monarchy. The two things that Amos has particularly hammered. They're going to go. Now these two pictures, no longer, says the Lord, they surround the conflict in the middle of the chapter between Amos and Amaziah. So this conflict between Amos... God's true prophet, and Amaziah, the hopeless priest, they explain why God says no longer. Okay? Now, so this conflict, it's, uh, well, it's striking. There's conflict with the messenger, God's messenger, and there's conflict with God's word that goes on here. Let me read it again. Amaziah, verse 10. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Oh, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword. Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then, to verse 12, Amaziah says to Amos, I think probably there's a gap between verse 11 and verse 12. Amaziah, he's like the Archbishop of Canterbury, not in terms of looks or, uh, or, or theology, but in terms of his position in the country. Bethel is the religious centre. He's the key man in Bethel. Okay? So it's a bit like the Archbishop of Canterbury sends a message to the monarch, you got to, or the government of the day, you've got to shut this man up. And I think in verse 12, Amaziah has got the message back. Yes, you're quite right. Kick him out. I think that's what's going on. Now, Amos is pretty terrific in this, I think you'd have to say. So Amaziah puts him under enormous pressure. I wonder if you've ever experienced this sort of thing. So verse 11, there's misrepresentation. Amos is saying, well, it's not quite what Amos is saying. So Amaziah reported as Jeroboam will die by the sword. Well, it's not quite true. He didn't say that. He said the house of Jeroboam would rise. Uh, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you, my king. Well, that isn't true. So Amos is misrepresented. He's tempted as well, verse 12. I mean, it's a bit of a shout, but verse 12. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Look, there's an easy life down the road. Get out of Israel and go to the neighboring country of Judah. You can still do your job as a prophet and earn money. Why not do that? Take the soft option. There's misrepresentation, there's temptation. There's intimidation after that, verse 13. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. Do you need to remember where you are, Amos? So he pulls rank. It's that sort of thing. So it's a pretty heady cocktail. You know, misrepresentation, there's temptation for an easy life, intimidation. And Amos is terrific. Verse 14, he answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Do you know what? I don't do this for the money. I'm not into this business of prophesying for the money. I'm doing this on my holiday. I've taken a work sabbatical to come up here and take a load of abuse from you. I earned a very good living 
as a, care, as a shepherd and uh, uh, took care of sycamore trees. Shepherd, very boring. It's a technical word. It actually means managers of shepherd. It's not the normal word for shepherd in the Old Testament. Not like the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. It's a sort of manager of shepherds. So he's, he's in management. You know, he's a CEO of shepherds. And he's got a sycamore tree business on the side. So basically, Amos, he's all right, you know. He's, he's got some cash. He's saying, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing it because God's told me to do it. He's a model for us in that, I think. God doesn't always want to call people from their present line of work in order that they may deliver God's word to people. The Lord uses shepherds and sycamore fig tree gardeners to tell people about Jesus and lawyers and teachers and musicians and students and bankers and all sorts of professions. Verse 17 is brutal, I guess. Uh, So pick up verse 16. um, Hear the word of the Lord, Amaziah. You say to me, don't prophesy against Israel. Stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says to you. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up. And you yourself will die in a pagan country. As Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. That's upping the ante. You and I read that and think, calm down. It's like the two people having a fight outside before church. You give way to me. Well, you know, you're not allowed to preach. Well, I'm not. I'm allowed to preach, and you're going to go and all your wife. And it has. But do remember, throughout the Bible, those who teach God's word are held to a higher standard. So, as in the New Testament, James three would put it. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. If you're claiming to speak for the Lord, that is very serious. If you do so and willfully get it wrong, well, I think you can say, it's never great to judge sins within the Bible. And I don't know if you do. We all mentally have a list of sins that must be worse than that. But the worst sin, biblically, it's to teach falsehood. Worse than anything you can do morally. Worse than anything you can do sexually. To teach falsehood. That's why he gets judged. So, severely. So there's a conflict with God's messenger. But ultimately, do you see that this conflict is with God's word? That's what 16 and 17, you say, stop your preaching. Therefore, the Lord comes back and says, there's a judgment. Amaziah, as I say, he's the priest of the land. Bethel's the religious center. It is as if the Archbishop of Canterbury says, standing next to the the, the prime minister of the country, no more preaching. No more Bible preaching anywhere. Not in this country or you'll all die. And at that point, God says, I've had enough, you know. I've had enough. I've been really patient with you, Israel. I I endured your immoral behavior. I endured your immoral sexual behavior. I I endured with patience your your drunkenness. Uh, I've endured your pathetic church worship. I've endured all these things. and, uh, And I have endured with your corrupt, 
finances and I've endured the fact that the poorest in society can't get justice in your courts and then you pressed out. I've endured all these things. But that's just it. Now you said there is to be no preaching of my word in the land. That's it. You're out of here. Enough. Pleading for others released God's mercy. Ignoring God's word, well, that produced justice. For you and for me, what do we do with this? Well, may I suggest we trust God's man who pleads for you, and then we plead. Trust God's man who pleads for you, and then we plead. Amos chapter 7, the Lord calls believers to pray. He tells us to expect religious opposition like Amos did. But it also reminds us, perhaps primarily, that we need a man like this. You and I need a man like Amos, who comes before the Lord and says, Lord, they're so small. Please forgive them. And we have that man. We have sung of that man. That man is Jesus Christ. He was God's man who knew greater opposition than Amos ever had, greater opposition than any of us will receive. He had the greatest of opposition from the religious leaders of the day, and he was put to death by the Pharisees and teachers. He never held back from proclaiming the truth that God's patience would run out. Many of us here will cave, will be intimidated and say nothing, will be tempted for an easier option, so won't tell people of Jesus Christ. Jesus never did. He's the man we need to plead for us. We began this evening, Hebrews 7 verse 25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Or Paul will put it in Romans 8 verse 34, who is the one who condemns a Christian? No one. Christ Jesus who died and was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. We have one in Jesus Christ who pleads for us, Lord, not them. I've died for them. And so it's not a hopeful pleading like Amos. Oh, oh, please, Lord, please have mercy. Christ's pleading is confident. Father, you will have mercy on them, for justice fell upon me. It's a very different sort of pleading. Not hopeful, certain. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ speaks your name to the Father and says, forgive them because I've paid. So if you know that Jesus is in heaven pleading for you, you never fear God's patience running out on you. Even though it should in many ways, it can't. Because for everything we've done wrong, Christ has paid and he says, Father, forgive Father, forgive. He's interceding for you and me tonight, saying, Father, forgive them. That's why we sing, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads. Tonight, tomorrow, this week, he lives and pleads for you and for me, if we're trusting him. You've got to know that. 
you have to trust that God's man is pleading for you. It's wonderful. And for those of us who do know that, for those of us who are Christians and know it well, that we have one, a, a priest who pleads for us like Jesus Christ. Look, you and I can never intercede in a perfect way like he does because we haven't lived a perfect life, but we can still pray. And may God give us more tears to pray for those who don't know him. Trust the man who is pleading for you tonight and copy him in crying for those who haven't been forgiven and need it so very much. God's patience will run out for them. But while there's time, let's plead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us the example of Amos. What a man. Terrific. Facing down the, 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 the monarch of the day, the government of the day, the, the religious establishment of the day, uh, and saying, no, God has given me a job to do. I will not be quiet. What a man. But Father, some of us are brave in that sense. But we also want to be like him in tearfully praying, pleading for those who don't yet know you, that they would trust in Jesus Christ before your patience runs out. Uh, Father, thank you that we do so. Knowing that even this evening we have one who pleads for us. Will we be confident in your forgiveness through him? And would we plead for the sake of others? Amen.